would to Matthew chapter 20 tonight. Matthew chapter 20. Grateful to have you back this evening. We won't keep you too awfully long tonight, but I'd like to challenge you tonight on a subject that I think will be a help to all of us. Matthew chapter 20. Years ago, a train was about to leave a large railroad station, and the conductor began to take tickets. And uh, coming, uh, looking at the ticket of the first passenger he approached, he says, friend, you're, a, you're on the wrong train. The, friend looked very, the, the man looked very confused, and then he came to the second man, looked at his ticket, and said, hey, you're on the wrong train too. And of course, they started arguing with him, saying, I'm pretty sure we're on the right train. And he finally decided to go check with the clerk, with the ticket agent, and found out that he was on the wrong train, the conductor. Uh, the question is, when the leader is lost, how can we make sure that those who are following us are on the right track? Uh, well, as we live by the book, we are on the right track, amen? And the question is, are we leading anyone? I want to preach uh, for the next few weeks on the subject of leadership, servant leadership, and this idea of leading people. Are, we all ought to be leading someone. We all ought to be helping someone else and pouring our lives into other folks. So let's read here, uh, starting at verse number 20 of Matthew chapter 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? Uh, obviously, this is Jesus she's coming to. She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on the right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? To be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on the right hand and on the left uh, is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. When the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. <laughs> you think? It's a common uh, response from uh, twelve guys, uh, young men. Uh, and these two upstarts had their mom come and ask Jesus to put them on the right hand and the left. Yeah, it would cause a little bit of friction, I would think. Verse 25, But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they are, they are, that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you let him be your minister. And whosoever shall be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Tonight I want to talk about the leadership, the mark of authentic leadership, which is servanthood. Father, I pray you'd help us as we look at this passage, break it down, may it be a challenge to each and every one of us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Warren Bennis said this, I quote, leadership is a word that is on everybody's lips. The young fight against it, police seek it, experts claim it, the artists spurn it, scholars want it, bureaucrats pretend to have it, politicians wish they could find it. But everybody agrees on this one fact, there is less of it today than there used to be. How true is that statement? 
There is so very little true leadership left in the world today. Consequently, there is a crisis of leadership in our churches. You don't have to read the news long to hear of some preacher caught in a moral failure or a financial scandal or just quits and just moves on to something else. I am very disappointed in many of even my colleagues, even in this state, who are so soon to quit when the going gets difficult. Leadership does not resign in difficulty. That's when it shines, or it should. And there's a crisis in leadership today. It's one of the concerns as I look around both in our society and also in our churches. The generation that I came up under in the, in the uh, 2000s, would you believe that? As I was growing up, the, no, the 80s and 90s, uh, it was a different group, amen. Now you had uh, great churches and preachers that built big ministries and, and bus ministries. There's still some of that today, but that generation is leaving the scene. Are we replacing ourselves? Do we have... Uh, the, I remember when I was a teenager, the, the amount of preachers that uh, I was able to be exposed to great preachers uh, that day was a, a real blessing. But we need to replace that. Where will we find the leaders of tomorrow? Are there really less people that take on leadership roles? Kent Hughes, in his book, Dis Disciplines of a Godly Man, says exactly that, yes. There is a declining in people. Fewer men involved in leadership roles of America today than in any time in the last century. And the reasons for that are many. There's uh, uh, other priorities. They have other opportunities and maybe they are following more fancy careers or uh, more promising careers in the, in, in, as far as money goes. But for whatever reason, men just don't want to take leadership these days. Followers think and talk about problems Leaders think and talk about solutions, and we need to have more of that even in our churches today. There's another problem with concerning leadership in our day, and that is how to define it. Study leadership, read books about it, something that I actually do with quite a passion. I think since I've been in my early 20s, I've read at least one book on leadership every quarter, and many times more than that. There's some that I read over and over, but I'm kind of passionate about this subject of leadership because I think there is a real dearth for it and a need for it in our day. But there is a problem concerning how to define it. You study these books and you'll uh, find many different definitions or ideas of what a leader is. Many people equate it only with a position when a person is a boss. There's a big difference between a boss and a leader. Let me give you a few here. And if you have a boss, maybe you'll think some of these apply. A boss gives answers. A leader seeks solutions. A boss expects big results. A leader is generous with praise. A boss counts value. A leader creates value. A boss controls. A leader trusts. A boss commands. A leader speaks and listens. Bosses talk. Leaders listen. Bosses rush. Leaders are patient. Bosses expect greatness. Leaders teach greatness. Bosses cause nervousness. Leaders inspire confidence. The boss says I, the leader says we. The boss says go, the leader says let's go. And we could talk many other differences between the two, but I think we get the idea. No wonder some people don't want to be leaders. No wonder we're confused about what leadership is. 
And as I mentioned, I want to preach several sermons here for the next few weeks on leadership from the Christian point of view, from the Bible point of view. We, we know what the world says uh, about leadership. Jesus even alluded to it. But I want to look at what God says about it. I want to give you the biblical guidelines on how to be a biblical leader. Now, I will say this. The word leader is not found in your Bible. The word servant is found over and over and over and over. It was not Moses my leader. It was Moses my servant. It was not Jesus the leader. It was Jesus the servant. And on and on it goes. And so, servanthood really is the biblical aspect of leadership. Let's set aside, first of all, the idea that you have to be in some kind of a position to be a leader. One of the books I read a few years ago is uh, John Maxwell's The 360-Degree Leader. Great book. I would, I, would, I would encourage anybody to read that book. It talks about the fact that you can lead for people above you, below you, to the right of you, and to the left of you. You don't have to be a leader and only lead people under you. You, you can lead, anybody can be a leader. All a leader does is take somebody from this place to this place and helps them get there. That's what leaders do. And so let's put aside the idea you have to be in a position. All of us have the opportunity, and yes, as a Christian, the responsibility to invest in others. A leader is simply one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. There's a vast difference between the world's view of leadership and God's view of leadership. The world's view of leadership can be summed up in three words, perks, power, and prestige. And the world, the world that, that's what makes you a leader. If you have power, if you have prestige, if you have a position, a delegated authority, if you can tell people what to do, you're a leader. Not necessarily. Biblical leadership is something entirely different. In our text here, we come face to face with the very surprising words of Jesus Christ when he said, Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whoever would be great must become a servant. You know, he goes on to say that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. That's being a boss. That's what we just talked about. Jesus names it right there. Exercising dominion, giving commands and, and having control and giving out orders. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. In other words, those that have positions, uh, your CEOs, your bosses, your managers, they, are, uh, they exercise authority. But it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Wouldn't it be great if our government looked at it this way? Being the servants of the people, that's what they are. What do your police office, uh, officers' cars say? To protect and what? Serve. That's what they ought to do. That's what government ought to do. Leadership should be about serving. If you want to be a leader, be a servant. God's view of leadership is servanthood. The way to become a leader is to first become a servant. Now, here's the question. How do you know you're a servant? I'm going to give you a, a statement that's simple on its face and yet very, very deep in its meaning. Listen to this statement. You know you have a servant's heart when you react like a servant when you're treated like a servant. That's deep. Now think about that as I read it again. You know you have a servant's heart when you react like a servant when you're treated like a servant. That's not natural. Sometimes we, oh, who do you think you are expecting me to serve you? But when we're treated like a servant, how do we react? That tells you whether you really have a servant's heart. I want to look at four attributes tonight of servant leadership biblically speaking. Look at verses 20 and 21 here, and uh, let's look first at the, the servant has a humble heart. A humble heart. 
Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, that's James and John, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he saith, said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. That's the way the world does it, by the way. Uh, Lord, we're with you all the way, and after it's all over, I want to know how we're going to divide the spoils of victory here. We want to be first in the reward line. By the way, mommy was the spokesperson here. I don't know, that says volumes to me. Uh, hopefully, they didn't put her up to it. But evidently, on some visit that they were at home, I don't know if she's talking to them. Does he know what you're sacrificing? Does he know what he has in you two boys? Uh, and you know what? I'm going to talk to him. And she did. She came to Jesus. If it's okay, Lord, I've got this all figured out. I would like one of my sons to be on your right hand, one of my sons to be on your left right hand, one of my sons to be on your left hand. And... Uh, I just think it's kind of a funny picture of this. Sons of thunder is what Jesus called them. Maybe this is the thunder he was referring to, their mother. Uh, but this is how it works, right? If you want position, if you want leadership, sidle up next to the one that's in power. And you'll get that power and leadership and position. That's the world's way of thinking. Secure your place. Uh, you saw that in 2016, and you saw it in 1980, two of my... Presidents I admire very much, uh, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. And both of them, when they were elected, the, the media was against them. The establishment was against them. When they were elected, all of a sudden, everybody was sidling up and being real friendly, trying to get position from them. That's what people do in the world. That's a natural thing. Let me be on your right hand. Let me be on your left hand. Sidling up to power. Jesus said the Gentiles do it that way. Perks, power, prestige, positions. In the world, it's not what you know, it's who you know. How many times have you heard that before? If you know the right person, they can lift you up into the right position. Jesus says that's the way the world does it, but it shall not be so among you, he said. You want to be a leader? Great, be a servant. You want to be number one? Wonderful, become a slave. That's what Jesus tells them. This isn't pleasant for them to hear in those days, and it isn't really pleasant for us to hear in these days. Uh, even in the church, we haven't lived this way as we should. In many churches, like it is in the world, there's a kind of pecking order and there's positions and those that have, even, even in churches, you have those with uh, power trips and they want to be in control and you'd better know your place and you'd better keep your place. Have we copied the world's form of leadership in the church? Jesus said in his four words, not so among you. Should not be so in a local church. Jesus introduces humility into leadership. Humility is that virtue that when you think you have it, you've lost it. Humility, of course, is a tricky thing. The moment you think you've become humble, it begins to slip away from you. Humility is recognized in our life when we know ourselves and recognize who we are. That's really when humility will start to set in. When we get a good view of God and a good view of ourselves. That's what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the full glory of God... He said, woe is me. Before, he spent five chapters before that touting himself. Now he's, woe is me, for I am wicked and unclean lips. We get a good view of God. We see who we really are. Think about the Apostle Paul. I've used this numerous times, but it's so good to remind ourselves. During his ministry in Ephesus, uh, he's about 49 years old, they think, when he writes uh, uh, the, the Corinthians. And he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of all the apostles. Well, about five years after that, while 
he is in Rome and in house or under house arrest, he writes to the Ephesians. And he says this, unto me who am less than the least of all the saints. Well, first he was the least of the apostles, now he's the least of all the saints. Well, some time goes by, a few more years pass, and from Rome he writes, first, he writes Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He was the least of the apostles, then he was the least of the saints, now he's the worst of the sinners. What happened? He didn't become less spiritual, he became more spiritual. And in so doing, he became more humble because he started to see himself as he truly was. As Paul grew in his faith, his view of himself worsened. Didn't get higher, it got less. Humility in our life is a sensitivity to who we really are. When we recognize who we really are, we'll have a humble heart. And we have a humble heart, we're on our way to being a servant. A servant has a humble heart. Secondly, a servant has an honest heart. By that I mean a heart without guile, a heart without deception. A person who is honest in a biblical sense has a heart that it, what you see is what you get. You ever met those people that no matter what they say, you always step back wondering what they meant by that? Like There's always some kind of underlying thing going on. Being honest means you have truth, integrity, there's no tricks, there's no deceit, there's no game playing. Listen, we are in a work that's too important to be playing games. Amen? We're too, it's too important for that. Psalm 15, on the issue of honesty, says this, Lord, uh, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Lord, who will be close to you? The honest ones the one that speaketh truth in his heart. The answer is he that uh, is, it walketh uprightly, worketh righteousness. The chapter goes on. I want to read a few more. I'm not going to attach verses to you. You can read it, Psalm 15. But he that backbiteth not with his tongue, that is talking about slander and gossip. Somebody said this, I don't know who made this statement, but gossips are worse than thieves because they steal another person's dignity, honor, reputation, and credibility which are impossible to restore. So remember this, when your feet slip, you can always recover your balance, but when your tongue slips, you can never recover your words. Uh, being, uh, gossiping about others is a very bad sin. He that backbiteth not with his tongue. He goes on, Nor doth doeth evil to his neighbor. That's doing your neighbor wrong. Nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. He does not insult his fellow man, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. He despises wickedness. He honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. That means he that keeps his promises even when it hurts. You still keep your promises. He that putteth not out his money to usury. In other words, he doesn't lend out his money with unjust interest. He's not cheating people. Uh, nor taketh a reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Well, you want to shake up your spiritual life this week, let me challenge you to go to Psalm 15 and live it. Psalm 15 is a, is a, lot, to, uh, a lot to help us with our daily life. Let that be a mirror of your soul. That'll be a help. Honesty is hard to come by, even for Christians. I like the... Story of the man who was called to testify in a court case. The bailiff said, raise your right hand. The judge said, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? The man looks at the judge and says, well, which one do you want? Uh, it's hard sometimes to be honest, isn't it? Uh, honesty is hard to find. But you can tell a servant because he has an honest heart. By the way, being honest will not get you a lot of friends, but it will get you the right friends. Amen? And so let's be honest in our hearts 
And uh, that's what a servant does. Number three, a servant has an unselfish heart. In our text here, we're talking about James and John. If you want to get a little further background, you can go to back to Luke chapter 9, and, and uh, the, the, we, we see another example of this behavior. Verse 46 of that chapter says, There rose up a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. I just have tried to imagine this conversation many times in my mind uh, of the apostles. I've just tried to, I, I mean... A reasoning, thinking, I don't know, 20, 24, 25, 26-year-old men, they were probably at that time, uh, hearing them argue about who was the greatest. I'm sure they're not just, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. That's more like schoolyard talk. But how are they doing it? Uh, talking about their own, uh, their, their own ex- adventures or whatever it is. They're, they're talking about which one of them should be the greatest or on time. Doesn't that, though, just sound like church people sometimes? Touting our own accomplishments. Somebody says, I was able to do, oh, that's nothing. I did such and such, or I did so and so. Constantly building themselves up. Who's number one? Who's on top? Who's the greatest? In that verse of of that chapter in Luke 9, verses 47 and 48, this is what Jesus did. Perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child, set him by him, and he said unto him, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Boy, Jesus had a way of poking the balloon of the disciples, didn't he? Just releasing all the air of their pride. He says, you guys want to talk about who's the greatest? This little kid on my knee right here. He used the child. What is the mark of greatness according to Jesus? Arguing about is not going to answer the question. We're not going to argue ourselves into who's the greatest. Just proclaiming it doesn't make me great. I am the greatest. It doesn't matter. Uh, Everybody loves to toot their own horn. But uh, the toot of the horn doesn't tell you how much gas is in the tank. Amen? So uh, you don't, you, just proclaiming it's not going to matter. Boxer Muhammad Ali was big for this. He frequently announced, I am the greatest. One time, Muhammad Ali got on a plane and he didn't put on his seatbelt. And the flight attendant insisted that he put on his seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And so the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no plane either. Put on your seatbelt. And so he buckled his seatbelt, made a good point. How do you then find a great person? The great person is likely the one on his knees playing with children, investing in young people. According to this, as it is as likely, this, ver, this chapter of uh, Luke 9, it's as likely to find a great person in the nursery as it is to find a great person here in this uh, room here, isn't it? It's a little humbling, isn't it? That's what it's meant to be. Uh, you see behind the scenes where you don't get the praise, you don't get the applause, you don't get the gifts, that's where you're likely to find great people in the kingdom of God. Don't ever think, friend, you're the second string if you're not in the front or if you don't have a position or if you, don't, uh, if you aren't a headliner in the church, if you just have some behind-the-scenes work. Everybody is important in the work of God. We need to be a servant. The true greatness comes from an unselfish heart one who understands that God's work is more important than man's recognition. There's an interesting story in Numbers chapter 11. I was reading about that. I think it might, uh, maybe might even develop that into a message, but it's the story of Eldad and Medad. How many of you know Eldad and Medad? Uh, I just mentioned once in the Bible, uh, they were elders in the congregation of Israel. 
uh, it was the other elders had went up into the tent with Moses and they were prophesying and, and there was a, a, some big decisions that the people had to make. But Eldad and Medad stayed out among the people. They started prophesying among the people. And a kid runs into Moses and tells him, hey, guess what? Eldad and Medad are outside prophesying there in the middle of the people. And Joshua immediately jumps up in front of Moses and said, hey, we've got to go stop them. Here's what Moses said, Numbers eleven twenty nine, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? Can I tell you that God's work is bigger than you and me? God's work is bigger than our agendas. We are not, even here at Bible Baptist Church, we're not the epicenter of God's work on this great planet. Amen? Uh, there are others doing the work of God and Shocker of all shockers, there's people that do the work of God a little differently than we do it. That doesn't mean we need to get all bent out of shape. Uh, I think of Paul in Philippians 1, uh, verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He goes on in verse 25, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with all for your furtherance and joy of the faith. What a way of looking at your life, a life of serving God, instead of scheming to get your due, he says, Lord, it doesn't matter what happens to me. The only thing that matters is that your work go forward and that Jesus Christ gets glorified. He had the same attitude when God refused to remove his thorn. He said, most gladly, therefore, will I suffer reproach that he may glorify the name of Christ. This will revolutionize your life if you have an unselfish heart. A servant has an honest heart, a humble heart. An unselfish heart. Also, number four, a servant has a giving heart. It is really the heart of Christianity. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. That's what love is. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. And on the night he was, before he was crucified, again, again the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. They evidently didn't get the lesson from the child, and so again they were talking about, I did this, I should be the leader. Uh, no, I should be the leader because I did such and such and so and so. And uh, they were talking about this, who was the greatest, and Jesus got up and puts his parable into action, picks up a towel, takes a basin, and washes the smelly, dirty feet of his disciples. After he was done, and there was a real silence in the room, a shock. Silence, I'm sure, and a lot of shame. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the shame after you were arguing about which one of you jokers was the greatest and your Savior is down on his feet washing yours, or down on his knees washing your feet? There'd be a lot of shame in that room, and that's what Jesus said. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought also wash one another's feet. He's basically saying, if I can serve... You can serve. If I can do the menial tasks, you shouldn't stand around acting like you've got to be in some big position or have some big place before you can serve God. Nobody should have to roll out the red carpet for us to serve God. That's what he's trying to say. You've heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. I think it's better, God helps those who help other people. That's the giving heart. But back to our text here in Matthew 20, uh, Look back at this thoughtless and selfish request. I want to be on the right, and I want to be on the left. It's disrespectful, and you could say it's almost rude. 
But I think it's interesting that when they asked this question, Jesus did not rebuke them. Instead, he asked a question back. Look at verse number 22. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He's referring to his suffering and his death. He didn't tell them no. He didn't, he didn't rebuke them for their request. He just asked them, are you willing to pay the price for what you're asking? Do you want to be a leader? Great, he said. Are you willing to pay the price to be that leader? Are you willing to uh, pay the price and do you really know what you are asking for? Jesus basically says, okay, boys, you want to be on my right hand or my left hand? Follow me and suffer the way that I suffer. Do what I do. Be willing to uh, see come to pass in your life what comes to pass in my life. About a week and a half later, he was crucified with a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. Mark 14, 50, the Bible says, And they all forsook him and fled. Evidently, they weren't ready to follow him and drink of his cup and be baptized with his baptism. You can be a leader, but it may cost you everything you've got. And the way that you get there happens when you decide to become a servant. We need to be servant-hearted people. If you want to be a leader, it can be very frustrating because very few people want to be led. <laughs> it's, a, it's the curse of leadership, amen? A lot of people don't want to be led. That's why the Bible calls us sheep. You ever led a sheep? <laughs> man, oh man, we, we had one sheep growing up. And as difficult as that guy was, I can imagine, we called him Shofbok. It's an Amish word. And later we ate him, and he was delicious. But while he was living, he was not delicious. He was a horrible animal. Uh, I can't imagine a whole herd of them. And, uh, but he, uh, that's why God calls us. A lot of people don't want to be led. The trouble with being a leader today is that you can't be sure whether people are following you or chasing you. Sometimes they are chasing you. Sometimes they're following you. But if you're leading and no one is following, you're just taking a walk. We need to, take, uh, we need to be willing to be a leader, and biblically the way to do that is to aim for being a servant. You know the way leadership works, biblically speaking? I serve one person so well, God gives me two people to serve. Then I serve them so well that he gives me three people, and then four people, and then five people, and then six people, and my sphere of servanthood becomes greater, and other people will look on, wow, he's a Great leader. I look at somebody like Paul Chapel out in Lancaster or, or uh, John Wilkerson in Hammond and, and uh, Sam Davison and, and Pastor Gaddis at Heartland. See, uh, they've got great ministries that they have going there and think, wow, they're great leaders. Really, the truth is they're servants. They've served so well the few that God gave them that God gave them more to serve and then more to serve. Servant's heart is the way to leadership. But if you aim to be a servant, you'll never be disappointed. That opportunity is always there. You can always serve someone. A servant then has a humble heart. A servant has an honest heart. A servant has an unselfish heart. And a servant has a giving heart. How do you rate on that scale? Instead of looking for position, how about we just look to serve and let God promote us? That's the way that, that the best leadership comes about. We don't have really, I said in the beginning we have a leadership crisis. I guess the more accurate thing to say in our churches would that we have a servanthood crisis more than a leadership crisis. Plenty of people want to be first. Plenty of people want to lead the parade, have the big office, have the perks and the title and the prestige. God's looking for servants. Are we willing to be 
servants. God needs people who are willing to work behind the scenes. God's looking for people who are willing to wash the dirty feet of, their, of others. The question tonight then is not really where are the leaders. The question that we ask tonight is where are the servants. Are you looking for leaders? We need to find the servants. That's what God does. Because that's how he, that's really what biblical leadership is about, is servanthood. He says the world does it one way, it shall not be so among you. We do it a different way. We do it through servanthood. Find your servants, and then you found your leaders. If you want to be a leader, be a servant. Isn't that a great way that it can work out, isn't it? You see how that would help the church grow and how it would help the health of the, of the family of God if we would be willing to be a servant. Thank you, Father, for the text, the passage that we've got here. I pray that you would help us to now apply it to our lives. We thank each and every person for being here tonight. We thank you for allowing us to come together, fellowship together around your word. May you now help us to put these things to practice. Help us as we go out and face our workplaces, our families, or whatever we're involved in this week, that we would be willing to be a servant. We then hope to make an impact through that willingness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.